Okay, today I'm chatting with Erin Grover. Erin is an expert on blockchain whose mission is to help facilitate the use of the technology for creating greater transparency within the carbon credit markets. Erin has conducted extensive field research of emerging DeFi markets in Kenya, Uganda, and in India, and she's part of the World Economic Forum's Crypto Sustainability Coalition as a member of the Blockchain and Carbon Working Group. We chat about how blockchain can help scale these carbon projects and where some of the challenges lie for the people launching businesses in the space. So I hope you enjoy it. Here's my conversation with Erin Grover. Hey, Erin, good afternoon. Welcome to the Task Podcast. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. My, my pleasure. Um, look, let's get into it. I will have done a quick intro for our audience, but uh, only very brief. And, and I think a great starting point just to get a, a broader introduction on yourself, your background, what you do, so we can get into some of the subject matter today. Okay. So um, I pretty much spent all of my 20s working for different NGOs like the UN, um, USAID, Mercy Corps, in places like Afghanistan, Nepal, East Timor, and Cambodia. I then needed a break. I was on total burnout after living in too many war zones and wasn't really sure that the NGO world was a sustainable culture. So I needed to take a step back. I went on uh, to move back to the States and fell into crypto and blockchain about six years ago. I was in uh, the space of crypto asset management and crypto funds, and I helped my clients to make profits, but I wanted to do more than just make people profits. I wanted to take blockchain and help to create impact. So here I am about six years later, and uh, over the past couple of years, I've been doing work to support uh, supply chains for farmers in India and Kenya um, by creating transparency with blockchain. So for example, um, over the past year, I worked with a case study that has 20,000 farmers in India using a blockchain app to create transparency in their their supply chain transactions every day. And this has helped their incomes to increase by at least 300% because it cuts out the middlemen. This is really exciting. This is impact. Um, over the past year, I also uh, fell into uh, carbon credits on blockchain. Um, it's, a, it's a natural fit. And I realized this when I was working with these farmers uh, in this case study in India. So yeah, here I am um, after two decades of doing NGOs, uh, alternative investment and, and crypto funds. And, and now it's come to uh, blockchain for impact in, in the climate crisis. Cool. Thank, thanks for sharing. Of course, we, we connected on LinkedIn. I, I think you, so we must have had a mutual friend. I saw a post that you were commenting on and, and yeah, we certainly have overlapping professions in, in in some of the work I, you know we've been doing at both task and also the blue marble um it, you know i think obviously for you and i there's a natural kind of progression there in terms of you, you know your 
your entry into the crypto space, blockchain, and then getting into the impact area. But for many people, still joining the dots on these things, uh, uh, you know, something that's not that obvious. In terms of, let's talk about carbon credits and, and kind of blockchain native carbon credits. Do you want to talk about what, you know, where you see the real need for, for this type of technology in this space, where why it's needed, why it's useful? So as always, as we say over and over again, blockchain is for transparency. And uh, at the moment, I see a number of companies in the space uh, for carbon credits and tokenization and I have yet to see the majority of, of carbon solutions in the blockchain world that actually show that the carbon credits are real and where they are located. Uh, this is what blockchain is for. And, and yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. I, I wish most of the, I wish all of the big names in carbon and blockchain uh, had this element. I think some are making the transition after some serious uh, criticism from news sources like Bloomberg, for example, calling out Toucan earlier this year, right? Yeah. Uh, so I'm supporting, I, I'll give you the example of what I would love to see. Uh, I am advising a company called Reseed and they are creating blockchain native carbon credits. They have a case study in Brazil where there are, uh, well, they have a farm that makes about 20,000 US dollars a year on, on the produce. They went in and purchased the carbon credits for an additional 20,000 USD. The farmer's collective was paid right away. and these credits are monitored and it's not exactly real time, but it's close to real time. It's every, I think it's every five days with the combination of blockchain and satellite and geotagging. I think a lot of people don't realize that you can geotag and lock the data into blockchain. So let me give you an example other than this. I, I mean, with this with this case, you can say, okay, I bought my carbon credits from Reseed and they benefit this farm in Brazil, for example. You could go in and click on a link that opens up to Google Map to show, right? And right now we have uh, better and better technology coming out to monitor uh, carbon in the ground. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so another example of this is, there's an issue with um, food and where it comes from and where it really comes from. So saffron, for example, apparently the best saffron in the world comes from Kashmir. Uh, but the problem is um, you have Iranians saying that they have saffron from Kashmir and they don't, but they package it that way to sell it in the marketplace. Um, so they're, they're selling their, um, saffron from Iran with packaging that says it's from Kashmir. If I take blockchain, a blockchain app, and I get the farmers in Kashmir, when they uh, put their product into the marketplace, they can geotag it right where they're farming. Then I know, okay, the saffron's really where it says it's from. Yeah. So, so this is the power that we have with the blockchain. We, 
I mean, you are talking to a convert. Obviously, we've done. You know, I'm. I'm. Uh, we are primarily actually focused on NFTs now in the NFT space, but a lot of the work we're doing around NFTs are all around carbon and and um, you know being able to bake data into those NFTs. But in your view, what do you think the the barriers are? Because I I think. There are still challenges, right, in terms of, of we can, you know, I can talk about it on podcasts. We can, you know, I agree with everything you're saying. But what do you think of the challenges that are making it still difficult, really, to to kind of execute at scale this type of technology? Because we're seeing lots of marketplaces out there. We're seeing lots of great stuff happening, but we're also seeing lots of problems. And I do believe, you know, Web3 blockchain can solve some of these. But there are also real barriers around the adoption area are there things that you see as you know if we could fix them there'd be greater adoption yeah okay so i mean beyond funding right um i really believe after a whole decade working with ngos all over the place that the one of the greatest barriers is activating local leaders figuring out what they want, what they really need and empowering them, um, making them the focus of the story. Yeah. So, you know, there are a number of companies in the blockchain industry that think they're going to solve the problems in Africa. So they're going in and they're dumping a lot of money and saying, hey, look what we did. And then it's great PR. But at the end of the day, um, most of those companies will not succeed because they don't empower local leaders and make them the focus. I mean, I've seen this over and over again. Um, and it's not just the blockchain industry. It's just anytime international development comes up, this is the same story. So, you know, I once witnessed a, this like worst case example, <laughs> When I was living in Afghanistan, where I lived for two years working uh, with the UN on elections, um, I saw one very large global organization that was not the UN, but we won't say the name. Um, they they invested $100,000 into a local PR, like a local publicity campaign to help spread the word about public health and different kind of basic things that people could do to pre prevent illness, right? Mm. Um, so they spent most of this money on creating the messaging and then putting it on iPods to be delivered into the sticks of Afghanistan. They delivered the iPods and they realized the whole thing was a waste of time because the people in that village didn't have electricity. They never did. So they couldn't recharge their iPods. <laughs> It, it was just, it was such a waste of money. And this is what happens. You have people in high positions with, with uh, healthy salaries sitting in capitals of these countries and, and oftentimes in Europe, and they're not out there in the field working with the people. So of course they're going to be like, oh yeah, let's send a bunch of iPods to the middle of nowhere of Afghanistan. That'll solve everything. And there's no electricity. So like, yeah, it's the same concept. Like you have to first work with local leaders. I mean, I'm looking at blockchain right now and, and, you know, people talking about web three, like it's going to save the world. And I had to point this out uh, not too long ago that look, I've been working with these farmers <laughs> on blockchain and for a start, 
none of them want crypto. They could not care. They really don't get it. Yeah, sure. Put an app in their hand, but they want cash. They want cash. That's their life in rural India or rural Africa. And, and people look at me like, oh, wow. And like, or I'm crazy. Like, no, no, no. Like we're still a minority of people here. And of course I can have crypto and I would like it, but most of the people I'm focusing my work on, they couldn't care less. So that's another hurdle. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting what you're saying. I mean, I've been through some very similar experiences. I don't know if you've done any um, design thinking stuff. And I, I, I went through the whole process with IDEO. Uh-huh. a number of years ago and then worked on projects in I worked on one in Malaysia which um I, I won't go I won't name the the brand and and but they wanted to just go in and kind of deliver on something because it looked great for the brand and there was no thought around integration to local community and that that kind of design thinking process is really useful where you go in and you spend time and you get to understand the needs of the community when when you roll these programs out and the interesting thing for me is and I was able to do that and it went on it was an 18 month project and it it was great something that was of real benefit though was that it was monetized well and it was part of a business it wasn't rolled out there was an NGO element but you know what's your view having you know I've spent plenty of time in the non-profit space but when you look at you know kind of non-profit models versus social enterprises which are really looking at you know, business models around impact? And do you have any view on, you know, it works better, it solves more problems when you go in with a kind of business mindset around solving these problems? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look, that's why I left the NGO world. One of the the main reasons, Um, you know, teach the people how to fish. Uh, the, The nonprofit culture is broken because you're teaching people to constantly beg. And I think NGOs have important, nonprofits have importance um, as being like a third party. Um, I don't think NGOs should totally be eliminated. But when it comes to charity and philanthropy, I think there are certain situations where it makes sense when you have like kids with cancer or whatever, where like people are really helpless, you know? Yep. But at the end of the day, I value uh, supporting local people to create their own businesses, help them incubate what they're doing, because they're going to feel better that they created something that makes profit anyway. Like they don't want handouts. Yeah, for sure. Makes perfect sense. And I, I kind of had a feeling you would you would say that, but it, it, it was, you know, I wanted to kind of get your perception there. I, I mean, going back to the the smallholder farmers and obviously blockchain provides a level of transparency. It means we can have, you know, some sort of ethical structure around these credits and, and get rid of, you know, this, this greenwashing may not be the right word these days, but, you know, just creating more of a foundation around the credits that go out to market. But as you said just then, I mean, this is very much about also getting liquidity and money back into the hands of these farmers. Is it, I mean, when you look at these models for, you know, monetizing carbon and, and creating credits on blockchain, the the kind of economics around it are, are important. And that's that's also something from your point of view, is that something you see being facilitated in terms of blockchain and and the technology that you can wrap around this? Is is the so the question being, is it 
the challenges in that or so no the with rewarding you know with the monetization of this and the farmers i suppose i'm just asking what when you look at the kind of full solution here i mean on one side of it you've got a buyer of carbon we're creating transparency with blockchain you mentioned a minute ago it's about paying these farmers i mean do you want to yeah talk us through how you see that kind of holistic solution here that you're ticking all those boxes yeah so uh with this one case study through reseed um They pay the farmers uh, within the first 30 days, usually, and um, this is really exciting. Um, So the farmers actually get half of their profits um, from the sale. And then an additional uh, 30% goes into community development and um, helping them to have uh, like a local team that helps to spread this, to, to scale it. Yeah, you know this. This uh, the woman who leads the farm in Brazil. She has corporate farming companies that are predatory, just like circling because they want her land, mm. and she doesn't want to give it up. Uh, but because now, like her yearly income for the farm was doubled, like she feels way more confident. And Reseed is a company that will be working with her on the long term. This is not just a one-off. As long as she's maintaining her smallholder practices, the company's business model allows for, uh, in, you know, moving those credits every year. It was so on basis. It's incredible. So as a business model, just so I get it. So so X is, is profit. Of that X, uh, 50% goes to the farming community, 30% sorry, to the farmer, 30% to the community, and then 20% is what reseed, reseed take to run their business. Is that Did I understand that correctly? Yes. And how, I mean, this kind of leads into my next question, really, because I've been, you know, we've been as a business working with a, a business in the biochar space, and they're going through a one of the um, carbon market platforms, so carbon future. And, you know, there's this, for me, the biggest challenge is getting going because the margins are not, great and as they maybe shouldn't be i mean what you know it's still a social enterprise and really the majority of the focus is on you know cleaning the air creating these credits and improving the livelihoods of the farming communities as that type of model when you look at reseed is that is that something that is easily sustainable does it take a lot of funding to get going and my question really i suppose is you know the challenges for businesses going into this space how realistic is it do you need a huge amount of funding to get going or can you are the business models sustainable relatively quickly so that you can start to build up and scale the organization? Well, Reseed's doing well um, because, uh, and look, they're still in startup mode, but it's a team of experts um, from traditional carbon markets and they know the problems very well. So, you know, a part of it is really knowing your market and what you're doing, knowing the history of the market Right. And that's what I think a lot of the um, blockchain companies and, and carbon are missing right now. Yep. Um, but <clears throat> um, that saves time and resources just by working with like real experts. Um, the other piece to it is because the carbon markets are rising consistently at 60% a year and they have for about the past three years, this is only going to continue. It is very easy to raise uh, capital right now. And they're not even really taking investment. They are 
doing sales. They're in pre-sales mode right now. Yeah. So because carbon's in demand, um, it's look, it's not a walk in the park. It takes some effort, but we're, um, I'm, I'm seeing momentum happening here. And, you know, I, I think it's like, it's this intersection of looking at the demand, what is sustainable, um, the expertise, um, but, uh, uh, with what's happening in the world, uh, we're going to see more and more issues with the environment over the years to come. We're going to see more issues with food security. There are issues with with food security. It's just mainstream media is not really covering it yet. So if you can focus on sustainable solutions and figure out how to scale them while kind of tapping into that global market, um, I, I think there's something there. I mean, I'm I'm amazed right now about uh, LinkedIn and what I'm finding for regenerative finance. Um, yeah. It's incredible. I, I think uh, I, I know so many people right now who are focused on regenerative finance. I, I, I know at least three different people, no, four different people with regenerative finance funds. Um, I just spoke with someone out of Switzerland who has a um, a biodiversity fund that's launching. And that person said that, you know, uh, he's not interested in carbon so much because in five years, he really sees biodiversity funds as being uh, the hot ticket. So Interesting. there's a lot happening. Cool. Look, I wanted to change tact slightly just just on some other stuff because i know that you you know we it, i wanted to get obviously into this the this carbon area and blockchain but there you know there are other things you do and and metaverse is a word we are seeing uh you know thrown around and um and uh, you know there, there's some some good and some bad there's some terrible versions out there there's some some interesting stuff happening I mean, in your view you know that the metaverse versus the real verse you know what give, give us the kind of ten thousand foot view here and also what what do you see as the value of this long term i see a lot of value in the metaverse i uh i see it as a glorified zoom it is a great place for online interaction um and there are some really cool things happening for training and education and health someone was just using the metaverse not too long ago to be a uh, a surgeon for a, a, a breast cancer surgery. He was like the backup doctor and he was able to do everything from the metaverse, which is incredible. But with what I see and what people mostly focus on in the metaverse is like, look at my avatar <laughs> gaming. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's like, all right. So I just read that Mark Zuckerberg spent 4 billion last quarter trying to figure out how to add legs to floating torsos in the metaverse. (laughs) I'm sitting, I, I, you know, (laughs) I'm sitting here, uh, trying to figure out how to bring investors to the climate change issue and to saving the world in multiple ways. Right. And like, imagine 4 billion going to uh, that 4 billion that was spent on a floating torso in the metaverse. Imagine that going to reseed right now. Like we are at a point where we, uh, have very little time 
I have heard the general consensus in the scientific community for climate is that we have three to five years to figure this out. And I'm sorry to be the voice of doomsday, but we're really at this point. If we don't figure it out within that amount of time, like we're kind of done. So, you know, people don't like to hear it, but the metaverse is is not going to help right now. Like if we don't figure this out with nature, (laughs) there's not going to be a metaverse to invest billions into, you know? So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to bang the pots and wake up my industry and wake up others. It's a problem that we need to solve together. And it's just so, it's so hard. (laughs) So it is a mission. I mean, there's a lot to be done. I mean, I'm maybe I'm, maybe I'm over optimistic on things sometimes, but I always feel that there are more good heads than bad heads trying to sort these things out. And, you know, we will make progress in one way or another. I hope I'm right. So um, we shall see, but uh, it may be on, I suppose, an, on a, on a kind of closing question, web three, all of this tech and, you know, 10 years from now, where do you see this? You know, where do you see this all sitting? What do you see? And, th- you know, that that's obviously a you know that's a big vision question but even from your point of what you would like to see as well i mean what you know what is the 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 10 year ahead situation both that you maybe envision also though that you would like to see happening with all of this technology and how it can make a difference um i mean in in 10 years time as far as eco credits are concerned and um really transforming um, to to save our planet and and the human race. Like I see blockchain uh, and other technologies being used to create transparency and leaving little room for anything else. Um, Nothing's perfect. Like one technology is not going to save the day. Yeah. And technology is not going to change humans necessarily. You know, there's, there's only so much because you still have to go from the analog to the digital <laughs> with your yeah, data. Sure. So, but yeah, I mean, if blockchain is used in the right way, um, I, I think we have a chance, but we have to do something now to get to that vision in 10 years. For sure. And if, if, and if people, I, I would, you know, I'd, I imagine you you know you're someone with what you do that can help other people that that are trying to get into this space that are trying to make a difference and what advice would you give and if people want to learn more about yourself where where do they find out more about Erin and get in touch if if you're happy to be that kind of open Oh I'm very open I'm I'm trying to support um you know uh activists in the field doing this type of work uh, on a regular basis. So I, with, with the time that I have, I'm doing my best to talk to as many people as possible. Um, see, I, I agree with you that I think most people are good at the end of the day. And unfortunately the nefarious um, seems to be a small group of people in this world, but they seem to dominate the resources and the airtime. <laughs> but um <clears throat> as much as you can to focus on one thing and do it well. I know a lot of us have to spin plates um, to keep the bills paid, but the more focused you are, um, the better it is. I, I see this on a regular basis. I work with a lot of young activists in blockchain and impact who are out there in the field working on startups in Africa and India. And 
the investors I work with in places like Switzerland and Dubai, Australia, London, there's more than enough money to go around. The problem is that there aren't enough good projects to go around and they're not together enough for investors to feel safe. So for example, uh, I know of one project um, out of Africa and it's an incredible project and I, I want it to succeed. I want it to receive investment. But when um, the lead from this, this startup gets on calls, he's talking about five to 10 different things that he's working on and that scares investors away. <laughs> mm. And because they want to know that you have laser sharp focus to, to make your project work. Like, don't talk about those 10 projects. Like, you know, the investors don't have to necessarily know that. Um, it doesn't make them feel comfortable. So I'm here as a bridge to support these people in the field to get it together um, so they can be successful and to help and make a difference in the world. So I would say... Um, I am as available as I can be with my schedule, um, but to please contact me on LinkedIn. That's my best place. Cool. Well, for anyone listening, I will leave your LinkedIn details in in, in the notes. And uh, just to reiterate what you said then, yeah, do one thing and, and do it well. And I think, I mean, the point you make there actually, I think is, you know, is an entrepreneurial trait, you know, this kind of, if, if anyone is... You know, focused on with an entrepreneurial mindset of problem solving, it's sometimes very easy to creep outside of that solving one problem. And yeah, completely from personal experience, I can, um, you know, I, I can say how I've been in front of investors and and crept outside of just communicating the one problem we're trying to solve. So I can understand that. I don't know whether it'll ever change, but it's great advice. So, um, yeah. yeah, look, it's been great to have you on, and and I'll leave everything in the notes and and. Uh, for anyone listening and look hopefully hopefully uh you know at least your message is out a bit further and we've got some people listening who uh, want to learn how to do more good with blockchain with web3 with all of this technology so i appreciate you jumping on to join the podcast erin thanks so much for your time my pleasure <laughs> bye Hey, thanks for listening to the Task Podcast and hope you found it interesting. If you'd like to get in touch and have a chat with myself, Matt, or one of the team, then we are at hello at task.io and we'd love to speak to you. Cheers. Cheers.